it's been, I don't know, 16 or 17 weeks <laughs> since we have been together. And so, um, man, we miss you guys. Uh, we are so thankful that we had a little bit of time to get, to get together uh, in the park a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we'll look for opportunities to do that again as uh, we're allowed. Um, and so uh, we'll just keep uh, praying that God will um, allow uh, this to pass, that a... Um, uh, some sort of vaccine will come out quickly and um, and that we will uh, all be able to gather in, in kind of a more normal fashion. Uh, I was thinking this week about uh, how there have been some very specific times where I felt like God had let me down. Um, uh, one of the most devastating times that Tanya and I uh, experienced was watching our friend Bev die. Um, and Bev um, loved Jesus. She was a nurse at a Christian school. She was the life of the party for our small group. Um, and so when she was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, uh, we prayed desperately. We asked the elders of our church to come anoint her and, and pray over her. Um, we begged for a miracle, um, and we often reminded God that she had two young girls that uh, desperately needed her to, um, and, and they needed to see God do something so that they knew that they could trust him and they could believe. And, um, and yet I remember um, Bev dying and going to uh, her viewing and touching her lifeless hand and thinking, God, if you had answered our prayers, Bev would still be here. A few years later, um, we were visiting my parents and uh, we saw Frank for in the parking lot of uh, Lowe's and, um, and, Frank had always been an athletic guy. Uh, he played baseball. He was in baseball leagues. And uh, and you can imagine my surprise seeing a guy who's not even 60, um, who had always been super athletic with a walker, and Frank had an ALS. And uh, I remember saying to him as we walked away, Frank, I'll be praying for you. And he said, well, at this point, that's about the only thing that would help. I need a miracle. And so it wasn't very long after that that I got a phone call. Hey, Tim, would you fly in and do Frank's funeral? And I remember um, his youngest daughter being so angry at God and saying, if God really cared, he wouldn't have let this happen to my dad. Um, my dad would still be here. I think we've all seen it, right? We, we've experienced loss firsthand. Um, some of us have experienced loss of a loved one. I, uh, um, uh, Sam and Jay are on this morning, and uh, Sam captured so beautifully this week the loss that they experienced as they had four miscarriages. And, and that is going to take years, and it will never truly heal. It's something that they will carry their whole life until they're in glory and they hold those children. Some of you have experienced loss and you've experienced loss in a different way. Um, maybe it's the loss of a job during this period. Maybe it's uh, the, the loss of a relationship or even a marriage, right? Um, maybe it's the, a financial loss that's so big you think there's no possible way I can recover. And, and no matter what you thought about how God works, you can't help him, but help but blame him for your loss. Today's passage, we're going to be looking at two women 
and these two women uh, were blaming Jesus for their loss because they could not understand how it is that he works. We've been in the Gospel of John, and in the Gospel of John, we said that, that Jesus did nine signs, and in each sign, he meets a physical need or a felt need, and he does something incredible, and then he, he kind of takes it to the next level. He doesn't just turn water into wine, but he turns water into the best wine. He doesn't just heal a boy, but he heals him from a distance. He doesn't just feed 5,000, but he has 12 baskets left over. He doesn't just walk out into the sea, but he walks out three or four miles to where his, his disciples are. And with each sign, he does the unbelievable, and he calls us to believe. He calls us to believe in his deity, and, and, and he asks us to trust him. And so John chapter 20 says, Jesus did many other signs, but these were written that you might believe in the name of the Son of God. And by believing in his name, you might have life. And so John chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. And John chapter 11 is a familiar story. Um, it is uh, the story of Lazarus. It says there was a, a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. It, it almost seems like um, John is introducing us to Mary in this passage, getting ready to do John chapter 12, where he'll talk about J Mary anointing Jesus' feet. And so he's kind of setting the stage. Who are these people? And and um, as he does this, this section, actually the first 16 verses, it's almost like it's a prelude or an introduction as he's talking about what's about to happen. And so um, the sisters sent to Jesus and they said, Lord, the one that you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not, it's literally culminate in death. This illness will not culminate in death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Just re read that again. When Jesus heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Like that, that word so, like because he loved them, he stayed. We're going to talk about that. The disciples said, Rabbi, the, the, the Jews were, were just now seeking to stone you, and, and you're going to go there again? And Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. And the disciples said, well, Lord, if he's sleeping, he's going to recover. And Jesus had not spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking rest and sleep. And after saying this, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. But let's go so that you may believe. And let's go down to him. And so Thomas called the twin and said, well, let's go that we may die with him. Now, in this introduction section, you have to see two things. One is, is it says that, that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, so he waited. And, and I think as we look at that, we go, man, that doesn't make sense, that God in his love waited until Lazarus died? 
right? Um, and, and Jesus made a couple of statements, and these statements help us understand that there's more going on here than what we see on the surface. And one is, he says, this illness is not going to culminate in his death, and it, it, it will culminate in God's glory. And, and he also says to his disciples, Lazarus has died. He knows. He knows what's going on. There's no surprise happening. And so he, he knows that this is not going to lead to death and end there. He knows this is going to lead to death, but it won't culminate there. It will culminate in God's glory. And so this is just a reminder to us that God is constantly at work, even when we can't see him, and that God is more concerned about our personal holiness than our temporary happiness. And so this is, is a, a, a meaningful example to us of, of where, where, where people say, um, because something bad happened, God can't possibly love me. And instead, we look and we go, God allowed certain bad things to happen because he loved them. And, and we're going to find out a little bit more about that as we go along. This is very much like, uh, think about Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph was in, in jail for, for two years. And during that time, he didn't look at that as like, oh, those were the jail years. He thought, this is, I'm going to die here. This is my lot in life. I'm, I, my, my brothers have betrayed me, and now I'm in Egypt, and I'm in jail. And it wasn't until afterwards, after he had been freed, after there had been seven years of good and seven years of famine, and his brothers showed up, that he was able to look backwards and say um, that, that what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And often we cannot possibly see the thing that God is doing in his love during the hard things. And so, um, it says that the, the, the disciples are, are wrestling with their belief, and they have seen the signs, right? Peter has confessed, you know, Lord, where else will we go? You have the words of life, and, and they, they know that he is the Messiah of God, and yet they're worried that he might get stoned to death, and they're worried that, that they're going to die. And so Thomas says, all right, well, let's go die with him, right? So, so that's the the introduction, and then now we're we're gonna kind of see a couple of different interactions with Jesus with Martha, and then Jesus with Mary, and then Jesus with the crowd, and they are remarkably similar. They're parallel storylines. It's it's like the same thing happens over and over again, so that it reinforces in our mind what it is that God's saying. It says in, in John chapter 11, verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That's significant to Jewish people because rabbis taught that after the second day, the soul departed the body. And there's no possible way that, that there was going to be any possibility of life, right? And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Here's Martha, and she is trying to hold on to faith, but her faith has been shaken. And Martha blamed Jesus for her loss because she could not see how he works. It's four days after he's been dead. They, they had, had called way in advance, Jesus, please come back, right? And Jesus waited and delayed and, and, and delayed until Lazarus was dead. And so here's a hopeless woman, a despondent woman, a, one, a woman coming out to say, Lord, this is your fault. 
I'm blaming you because you could have done something. I've heard the stories. I know what happened when you healed a, a little boy from a distance. When you got word that my brother was was ill, you could have said, okay, Lazarus, be well. And, and none of this would have happened. And if you had just shown up, my brother wouldn't be dead. And, and yet in her in, uh, attempt to hold on to faith, she's like, look, I, I know whatever you ask from God. God will give you. Like, my prayers didn't work. For for days, I prayed that he wouldn't die, and then he did. And and I know whatever you ask, you're going to get from God. And Jesus said to her, well, your brother will rise again. And Martha goes, look, I know. He'll rise in the resurrection. I'll see him in heaven. But that's, that's the discussion as it's going. But Martha blamed Jesus for her loss because she couldn't see how he was working. And Jesus called her to believe in his love so that she could see God's glory at work. And, and Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. This is one of those statements. There's seven of them in John where Jesus uses, and we talked about one as, as we talked about the storm, where Jesus uses, I am, I am, uh, ego and me. Um, he, I am that I am the resurrection and the life. Seven times he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I am the vine. Each, each one of those, he says it in the, in the, the forceful words of Yahweh the, when he stood before Moses at the burning bush and said, I am that I am. And he says, I am that I am, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die right? So he is calling her to believe in his love and, and to see God's glory at work. And he says, I am the resurrection. Like Not just you'll see him in the resurrection. I am the resurrection. And whoever believes in me, though, he should die. He, he, this is the, the doctrine of the resurrection that we, we carry. It is our, our hope that there's more to this life than this life. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is the, the, the doctrine of, of um, life eternal. And I, I say life eternal instead of eternal life, because when we say eternal life, we tend to think in, in quantity of years. But life eternal, the emphasis is, is on life. B.B. Warfield uh, said, um, whatever death is and all that death is, that sh we shall be saved from in salvation. But whatever life is and all that life is, that is what we will be saved to in this salvation. And life and death are more than just the physical absence of breathing and heartbeat and, and brain pattern, right? Life is that we experience true life in him. And death is all the things. It's not just the body ceasing to work. It is separation from God. It is eternal separation and darkness. It is, and, and he says, he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, He's not going to die. He's going to live. And everyone who lives, who, who I give life that is truly life and believes in me will never die. He'll never experience those things. He asked Martha, do you believe this? Martha responds with an incredible statement. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. That is, you are the Messiah. You are the one who will make everything right. And, and the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now, when she says Son of God, um, you know, we, we tend to read that and, and we're not really sure 
what to make of it, right? Jesus calls himself the son of God, but Jesus actually uses three different Greek words when he refers to himself as the son of God. And, and sometimes those different Greek words have different meanings, right? So, so when he uses the, the word pais, um, uh, he uses it to describe himself as a son, but a son who is acting as an obedient servant. When he uses the word technon, it uses it to say, um, I am sent from the father, I like he's he's I'm his emissary, but but the word that that Mary or Martha chooses to use is the word that Satan used in in Matthew um, when when Matthew it records Jesus being tempted and Satan says if you are the son. That is, if you are the true offspring, if you are the true heir, if you have all the authority that the father has, then then you can do what he does because you are equal with him. If you are the son, the true heir with all authority, then throw yourself down and the angels will catch you. And she says, I believe that you are the son. You are the true heir. You have all the authority of God himself. You are the son of God who is coming into the world. And so her declaration declaration of faith is very, very clear. And she doesn't understand how he's working, but she is believing in his love, even though she can't see exactly what's happening. So she goes to, to Martha, or to Mary, I'm sorry. And when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary and saying in private, the teacher's here and is calling for you. And I think it's just as simple as there was a crowd of people there and they were mourning and she wanted Mary to have just kind of a moment alone with the Savior. And and so she went to her in private and said, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose up quickly and she went to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly to go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet. And what did she say? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary does the same thing Martha did. Mary blamed Jesus for her loss because she could not see how it is that he works. She is too broken for words beyond her accusation. And, and, and the amazing thing is in her brokenness, I don't know if you've ever been with somebody who uh, they start to cry and you immediately tear up. Um, uh, when Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her, they were also weeping. And he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. She, she is so broken. All she can say is the thing that she has been thinking about for days now. She and Martha have talked about this. They, they sent for Jesus. And then they began to say, hey, when's Jesus coming? Do you think he'll make it today? Do you think he'll be here tomorrow? Do you think he'll make it before Lazarus dies? And then when Lazarus dies, we sent for him. Why didn't he come? If he had shown up, this wouldn't have happened. They've had this discussion. And so Mary blames Jesus for her loss because she cannot see how he works. But Jesus does with her what he did with Martha. And he calls her to believe in his love so that she might see God's glory at work. And, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. 
And Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not, who had opened the eyes of the blind, also kept this man from dying? Notice the way that Jesus responds to Mary and how different it is from Martha. Like the, the similarities are in, in how, what they say is, is very close, but Jesus' response is different. Mary is at Jesus' feet. The three times that we see Mary that are kind of like big chunks of scripture that she is in, all three times in the scripture, Luke chapter 10, here, and then the next chapter, John chapter 12, each time she is at his feet. She is already worshiping. This is part of why Jesus doesn't ask Mary, do you believe? Because she has already put herself in a posture saying, I absolutely believe. I just don't understand. And, and he is deeply moved. And, and three times the passage says that Jesus loved her and her family. And three times it says he was deeply moved or that he cried. And so you see that, that his love comes out in this emotional outpouring. And while Martha needed to hear, your brother will live, Jesus knew that what Mary needed was someone to grieve with her. And God knows you. And God, as he's calling you, knows what you need. And he knows whether you need to be your, have your head addressed or have your heart addressed. And he will meet you in the need that you have. And, and the, the, the crowd is with him. And, and they say, look how Jesus loved him. And, and even there, his, his love is moving her towards his glory as he says, where have they laid him? And Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And this is where um, uh, the, the, he begins to address the crowd. Remember, the crowd are doing what Mary and Martha did. Mary and Martha are blaming Jesus because they don't understand how he works. And the crowd says, could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? And so they're blaming. And they're, they're, they are blaming Jesus for this loss because they're not understanding how Jesus works. And Jesus is going to call the crowd to believe in his love and to see his glory at work. And, and Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb, and it was a cave and a stone lay against us. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Well, Martha, who believes, right? She believes, but she doesn't think that Jesus can do anything at this point. Martha, the sister of the dead man said, Lord, by this time, there's going to be an odor. He's been dead for, like, if you want to say goodbyes, just say goodbyes from outside the cave. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Where, where did Jesus say that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? He said that to the disciples, right? He said that back in the beginning of the chapter when, when he was talking about um, going to, to Judah. And, and he said that if they believed that they would see the glory of God. This is way back in the beginning, beginning of the chapter. And, and so he says, did I not tell you? And it's, it's like it's being addressed to, to Martha. But really, the, the disciples are there in the crowd. And the disciples are the ones that are hearing him speak. And, and he says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And it, that kind of gives us an indicator of who it was in the crowd that was probably saying, look, um, uh, if this guy healed a guy blind, couldn't he have healed this man? The disciples were there. They had seen Jesus heal the blind man. And so most likely they're the ones in the crowd going, I don't get it. Why didn't Jesus do something about this? And so it says that they took away the stone. 
And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you've always heard me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And he prays in a way that maybe we should pray more often, right? God wants us to pray according to his purposes and according to his will. It's why when we end our prayers, we say, in Jesus' name. And what we are saying is is John chapter 14 and John chapter 15 and John chapter 16 all contain phrases that say, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. And, And when we say in your name, what we're saying is according to your will, according to your purposes, according to your plan. And I've noticed that there is a difference when I pray, um, and I pray n- not according to my presuppositions or, or my um, uh, presumptions about what God will do, but rather when I pray about something I know that God wants to do, I know that there's a, a difference in the outcome, right? Um, if I pray and I say, look, Lord, your word says that you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so I know that it's your will that you would call and draw and save my friend. Um, And so I'm just asking you to do the thing you want to do anyway. That's a different thing than, will you give me all these things that I want for myself? I remember um, uh, we were living in in Texas um, and uh, we had just moved to Fort Worth and we were setting up our house. And um, I had asked the landlord if I could mount some um, bookshelves into into the walls. And he was worried that that if I, if I, the racks that I had were like these, you know, the metal uh, uh, pole that goes up the wall and the things stick out and you just stick the shelf on it. So there would have been a bunch of screws in the wall. And he was like, no, no, I really don't want you to do that. And so I went to Ikea and I bought bookshelves that are still in our house. Um, and, um, and so uh, I took Jason and Joel with me and, and we went to Ikea and we loaded up all these flat boxes up on top of the van. And uh, we got in the van and we're heading home. And as we came up the ramp and onto the freeway, we could see this enormous storm that was out in the distance. And, and there were just flat fields as far as you could see. And there was rain on this side and there was rain on, and you could see the rain coming down. And I said, oh man, we should pray that, that God holds the rain off. And Joel was like, I don't know, three or four years old. And he goes, dad, do you think God cares about the bookshelves? And I said, Joel, I don't know if God cares about the bookshelves, but I know God cares about you. And I know that God wants you to come to faith and God wants you to come to a point of trust in him. So why don't we pray and ask God to show you that he is trustworthy by keeping the rain off these bookshelves. And he was like, okay. And so for 45 minutes all the way home, we prayed. And I prayed, Lord, Jason and Joel, they they are they haven't come to know you yet. They want to know you. They want to know that you're trustworthy. And so will you hold back the rain to see that you care about little things like bookshelves? And I knew if the rain poured on these like particle board bookshelves, I'd have a, like a big bowl of oatmeal on top of my van. And so we're driving and I'm looking at the rain and I'm thinking, oh man, this isn't going to go well. Like the rain's going to pour and I've just prayed and I put God on the spot and, and now the kids aren't going to know whether they can try him or not. And we got all the way home and I pulled into the driveway and I started pulling these boxes of shelves into the garage. And I got to the last box and the heavens opened up just as I pulled it off. And a couple of rain spatters hit the box. We dried it off. 
They weren't damaged at all. And the kids stood there and they started jumping up and down. And they're like, God answered our prayer. God did it. God actually cared. God's trustworthy. I think when we pray according to God's will, we pray for the thing that he wants, often he will answer those things in an, in kind of an unbelievable way. And so, so here's a crowd and they're doing what Mary and Martha did. They're blaming Jesus for their loss because they don't understand how he works. And Jesus calls them to believe and he calls them to believe in his love and to see his glory at work. And so he prays and he says, Lord, will you show them um, and I, I'm praying to you, not because you need to hear from me, because they, they need to hear and they need to see you. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died come out and his hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus turns to the crowd and he invites them into the miracle. And he says, unbind him and let him go. Jesus does what Jesus always does, which is um, he looks at the disciples in the crowd and he says, look, I, I want you to be part of this redemption process. I want you to be part of this one who is coming to life. Um, I, like, I want you to peel away the decaying clothes of death that are on him so that you can see the new skin of life that I've given him. And, and it is a beautiful picture of the way that Jesus works with us in authentic biblical community. Jesus makes us alive and new, but often we are still wrapped up in the clothes of death and the clothes of sin. And Jesus calls other followers around us, and he asks them to help peel away the, the this clothes of sin and death so that that new life might shine forth. And it is messy, and it is gross at times. But at the end, everyone's faith is affirmed as they see new life come forth, and the the, the death clothes are cast away. And, and I think it's important to say, look, you, you cannot be sanctified apart from the authentic biblical community that happens within the church body. And the church cannot be complete and cannot be affirmed and cannot be whole apart from your sanctification. There's a symbiotic relationship where we need the church to, to help strip away the patterns of, of death that cling to us so that the life of Christ may be shown forth. And, and the church needs us because they need to see, look, it works. This, this thing actually works. And so Jesus does what he did with Mary and Martha with the crowd. He knows that they are blaming him because they can't see how he works. And he invites them to believe in his love and he shows the glory of God at work. Well, then a similar thing happens as the story goes forward to the Pharisees. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed. You go, wow, that's amazing. But some of them went to the Pharisees. They did not believe, clearly. And they told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. And they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will take away our place and they'll take away our nation. And here you see a group of religious leaders. And they are desperately trying to hold on to the, the sway that they have with people. They're desperately trying to hold on to the prestige that they have because of their position. They're desperately trying to hold on to the power that they have. And, and, and in all of this, that's their concern. And, and in their concern, they're blaming Jesus for what they're about to lose. 
They think because of Jesus, we are about to lose our place and our nation. We're about to lose our power and our prestige. We're about to lose our influence. When, when I see this passage, I am reminded that, unfortunately, religious leaders across time have not greatly changed. Religious leaders are often still Think about every election for the last 40 years. Religious leaders, right or left, saying, if our guy doesn't get in, we will lose our place, our power, our position, our prestige, our influence. And, and these guys, they're so concerned about that, that the, the thing that they're supposed to be leading people to, which is the Messiah of God, they're trying to hold back. They see his signs. And, and Jesus did these signs that they might believe. That anybody that comes and starts healing the eyes of the blind and causing the lame to walk and can make a man alive again, you go, that's the guy I want to follow. That's the Messiah I need because someday I'm going to be the one in a box. And my hope is that somehow God will resurrect me. And I want that. And these guys don't think like that. All they can think about is the temporary. And so they're blaming Jesus for what they're about to lose. But one of them, Caiaphas, was the high priest. And this is the most unlikely way for God to call them to believe in his love. But God uses Caiaphas, the one who is the most skeptical, the most evil, the most corrupt. He says, you know nothing at all. He's just deriding them. Nor do you understand it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. And the scripture says he didn't say this of his own accord, but he was the high priest that year. And he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. That So from that day on, they made plans to kill him. Caiaphas, this, this corrupt religious leader, is the one who shows God's call to believe in his love. He says something very similar to what Paul is going to write not very long afterwards. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Caiaphas just said it in a more concise way. Do you not understand it's better for you that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish? And so, so here they are. They are doing what Mary did, what Martha did, what the crowd did. They're blaming Jesus for their loss because they can't understand how he works. And God, through his spirit, through Caiaphas, calls them to believe in his love so that they could see his glory at work. You know, I, I think that as we think about the way that we blame God, um, often we are just as blind as Martha, just as blind as Mary, just as blind as the crowd, maybe even just as blind as these religious leaders. And, and we blame God for what it is that we've lost because we can't see how he works. And, and Jesus is calling us to believe in his love so that we might see his glory at work. Um, years ago, I um, was asked to visit a man who was just a few, man a few uh, days from dying. And I knew he wasn't a Christian, and he was facing 
in eternity separated from God. But I was reluctant to go. I knew this man primarily by reputation. He was cruel. He was abusive. He beat his wife. Um, he was a greedy hoarder who lived in poverty, even though he had squirreled away millions. And I sat down with this man and I was having a hard time coming up with any words. And so I just sat there and looked at him. And as I sat there and looked at this man, he was like, well, aren't you going to tell me God loves me or something? Not that I deserve it. And suddenly I had words. I said, no, Al, you don't deserve it. You've been a miserable, abusive man. You beat your wife. I've seen the bruises on her neck and her face. You spit on her. You've called your kids every name in the book. I can't believe they still talk to you. You, you don't deserve God's love. And yet, you've already gotten it. And, and you've used your wife as a punching bag for years, and she kept loving you. And you called her despicable names, and she never left you. And you were abusive to her, and, and you beat on her, and you railed on her, and she continued to love you. And, and I, my, my words to you are, um, I know that God can love you because God has already shown his love towards you. And he has allowed you to see his love through your wife. And she has done in many ways what Jesus did. Jesus was beaten up for us. Jesus was spit on for us. Jesus was called every name in the book. And I don't know what it was that made me say it. I said, what would you do, Al, if somebody spit on you? (laughs) And fire leaped into his eyes. And he said, I'd kill him. And then this Navy veteran, his lips began to tremble and tears began to run down his face. And he said, I should have killed him. And over the next few minutes, he went on to tell me, when he, when he was nine or 10 years old, he was in the San Fernando Valley, a group of older teenagers came upon him as he was walking. And they, at first, were just planning on taking his wallet and having some fun with him, but they beat him up. And then they threw him in a ditch. And then this group of teenagers urinated on him. And he said, in that moment, I decided I wanted to go learn how to be the toughest man in the world so that that could never happen to me. And so I went into the military. I lied about my age and I joined the military uh, earlier than I should have so that I could learn how it was to defend myself. And then he went on to tell me, and it was in the military that I met my wife. And they got married and they had been together more than 50 years. And I said, Al, can you not see that this thing that happened to you, it wasn't because God abandoned you. It was because God loved you. God used this terrible circumstance to cause you to want to go into the military where you would meet your wife. And for 50 years, God has been expressing his love to you through your wife. As you beat her, she loved you. As you reviled her, she loved you. As you spit on her, She loved you. And in all of that, God was showing his love to you. Aren't you ready to receive it yet? And I remember he said, tell me how. 
three days before Al Tabak went to meet Jesus, he met Jesus. And he understood who he was, and he understood what God had done. And he could look back and say, you know what? I blamed God for my loss. He, he had said to me, I didn't just lose my wallet that day. I lost everything. Um, I think he lost a, a sense of, of his humanity, a sense of his manhood, a sense of dignity. And, and those things drove him for his entire life. And he could not see until those moments before he died that God had orchestrated that so that he could see God's love to the person of Ada for 50 years. And he finally came to believe because somebody put it together for him. I think when we blame God, we blame God for our loss because we do not understand how it is he works. God is inviting us to believe, to believe in his love so that we might see the glory of God at work and the glory of God shown through Al-Tabak. In those three days, he lost his ability to speak. And in those three days, the glory of God shone through his face, so much so that his grandchildren, who were scared of him, said something's happened to pop up. And and they, he, he lost his ability to speak completely. And they, they said, do you see the peace on his face? It's like he knows where he's going. And so when I did his funeral, I got to tell them about the peace that he found. And I got to tell them about the love of God that he found. And I got to tell them what the glory of God was that was shining through. And one of his granddaughters said, I saw it and I want that. And she came to faith at his funeral. If you are blaming God for your loss, it's because you don't understand how he works. God is calling you to believe in his love so that you might see his glory at work. Our Father, we love you. We thank you that you did many signs through Jesus. But this one was written that we might believe, and by believing, we might have life. Lord, I pray that when we see the hard things, when we see the darkness, when we see the pain, when we see the suffering, that we will embrace you like Mary did, that we will fall at your feet. And even if we say, Lord, if you had shown up, this wouldn't have happened in our grief, that our faith will not be rattled, that we will be able to believe in your love, knowing that your glory is being worked out. And so we may not see it until years later. We may not see it until we are in eternity with you, but you are working out your good and perfect will. And so, Lord, we ask that your glory will shine through us, that your glory will shine through your church, that we will cast our cares on you because you care for us, and that we won't lose sight of you because you are the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, we love you. We trust you. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.